going to begin in uh, the message and in the message in, um, in the same passage here. And then we'll uh, hop back into uh, where we left off last week. Brother Joe, if you could give me just a little more volume on my mic, I'd appreciate that. All right. Hebrews chapter 11, once you found that, if you wouldn't mind, just stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll look at the first few verses here, a familiar passage. But I hope when you leave tonight, you have a fresh perspective on it. Look at verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Uh, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And then verse 4, we'll read through verse 6. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was uh, that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had his testimony that he pleased God. Then verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Again, to pick up last week, the title of the Bible study out of Hebrews is this, Jesus is just better. Jesus is just better. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, tonight to understand the Bible, and Lord, uh, to put in uh, context some familiar passages, and Lord, help us to leave here tonight uh, more in love with your word, more connected to your word, and then, Lord, uh, more connected to our Savior. Help us to uh, see things that we could do to improve, and then, Lord, have a, a teachable spirit to improve those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Hebrews, uh, I'm going to give a similar introduction to last week to catch everyone up that wasn't here, and then we'll hop in and uh, review quickly uh, the first couple of points and jump into the rest of the outline here. Uh, there are two books in the New Testament that really tie the Old Testament and the New Testament together uh, and just do a whole lot of explaining things. And then there are sections of other books that Paul wrote that did that as well. Uh, Romans and Hebrews do that really well. Romans and Hebrews explain what the Old Testament and Old Covenant was and where it fell short and how the New Testament or New Covenant comes along and completes that through the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. Now, uh, we talked about last week how that there is no... We don't know who the human author was and we talked about how that's been debated for centuries, whether Paul wrote it or Timothy wrote it or Titus wrote it or who wrote it. And uh, what I told you, and, and is my opinion, is it doesn't really matter because God uh, did not want us to know or he would have told us right there in, in the book. And uh, the reason being is because ultimately God wrote the book, right? Look at verse, uh, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 1, the very first word of the book is God. If you look back at a lot of the books that Paul wrote, the first book of those uh, word of those books is Paul. And God was saying um, uh, to make sure that we clarify to you Jewish Christians uh, who's writing this and what the uh, book is supposed to the authority behind the book. It isn't Paul. It isn't Peter. It isn't John. It's it's me. It's God. And I am going to tell you that my son Jesus is just better than all the things that you have lifted up and held high. Now, uh, we know it was written to uh, Jewish Christians because the author of the book 
assumes that the reader is very keenly aware, uh, very familiar with the Old Testament stories. Abraham in the covenant, Genesis 12 through 14. Moses in the departure uh, from uh, Egypt, Exodus 1, the law given at Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, 21, and 22. The priest in the system of sacrifices, we'll talk about that tonight, uh, the book of Leviticus, the wandering of the Israelites in the wilderness, that would be the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. So the, um, the author is under great uh, assumption that the uh, reader or the audience already knows the stories of the Old Testament, is very familiar with them, and, and has those instilled in them. Hence the name of the book, Hebrews. But we know that these people were also Christians because uh, uh, the, the, uh, the great assumption is that these people do believe uh, that Jesus was who he said he was. Last week we looked at Hebrews 10, uh, 32-39, and we saw how that this group of Christian, Jewish Christians, whoever they were and wherever they were, were being persecuted uh, for their faith. Now, uh, what did we say uh, was the problem with Jewish Christians during this time? Jews in general during this time. And I would say this is still true today. Uh, they worshipped the symbolism that pointed to the Messiah more than they worshipped the Messiah. Especially these Jews who claimed to be believers in Jesus. They still wanted to hold on to their Jewish traditions. They wanted to worship their Jewish traditions. I'm not going to re-preach Sunday evening's sermon, but doesn't that kind of fit with what I was preaching Sunday night? How that Christians today want to hold to traditions more than the Messiah, more than the Christ, uh, that uh, those traditions were put into honor. And so, uh, in the Old Testament, we find a whole lot of symbolism that points to the Messiah. And the uh, the Jews really fell in love with that symbolism because it was habitual for them. It was natural for them. They loved it. They elevated it high. And they did not want it to be taken away from their system of worship. They didn't want it to be taken away from uh, uh, what they had been handed uh, generation after generation. To use an example, uh, uh, you may remember Peter was on the roof there and uh, he had the vision and uh, Jesus came to him and said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter looks and there's unclean animals. And he says, how can I eat, Lord? Uh, they're unclean. And God says, what I've called clean, not call, don't, uh, don't call unclean. And he was being told, violate the Old Testament law because you're now in New Testament grace. And so, uh, the, but, but they had a hard time with that. They wanted to hold to their dietary restrictions. They wanted to hold to the Sabbath, uh, honoring the Sabbath, the Saturday. They wanted to hold to uh, the, uh, the circumcision with the males. They had a hard time letting a lot of things go. And then beyond that, they continued to elevate some of the things that have been elevated in the Old Testament. And so this book comes along and takes all of those Old Testament relics, those Old Testament habits, those Old Testament things that God had given the Jews to help point toward Jesus and say a Messiah is one day coming and say, okay, it's time for us to stop uh, uh, practicing some of these things. We can remember them. We can honor them. We can know them. But the end game was Jesus and he's come. So forget those things and let's just make a big deal out of the Lord Jesus Christ. We said that the book had two purposes. And those purposes can be found throughout the different sections of the book. And the two purposes were to elevate Jesus Christ above all of the uh, Old Testament uh, uh, traditions. And we said the second purpose of the book was to exhort 
or warn uh, Christians, okay? So uh, warn them, say, hey, you better do this, you better follow that because of the information that was just given. Can I tell you tonight, that's kind of what I try to do when I preach. I try to give you, in the beginning of the sermon, information. And then once I have laid the foundation of biblical information, use that to preach at you and inspire change from God's Word and the truth of God's Word. And that's what the author here of Hebrews is doing. He's laying out the case for Christ, and then he's saying, stop worshiping that thing and start worshiping Christ. So uh, tonight we're going to jump in and review the first two points quickly, and then we'll finish the message with points Three and four, and that will give us a perspective of chapters 11, 12, and 13. Okay? So we began, uh, last week by looking at number one. Jesus is the eternal word. Jesus is the eternal word. And we talked about how that he is elevated above the angels and the law. He is elevated above the angels and the law. And why is that important? Well, we said that they had this time-honored tradition within the Jewish religion that angels brought the law down to Moses. And you may remember uh, that uh, it was given to him the first time, and he got went down and he saw all the, the lewdness and sin, and, and he picked them up over his head and he just smashed the Ten Commandments, right? The tablets had been given him, and he had to go back up the second time and get them later. And uh, it's believed that second time it was given to him by angels. That was the honor tradition, and angels were a big deal to the Jews. How worshipped were angels? Well, you may remember that an angel showed up uh, while Gideon was threshing wheat, and he was fearful for his life. And then you may remember that an angel showed up uh, with Mary to tell her that, uh, that, uh, that, that she was with child. And he had to say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. They greatly feared them. Uh, they greatly feared them. I even believe that when an angel appeared to Samson's parents, they were feel fearful for their lives as well. They feared angels because if you saw an angel, it was possible, very possible, at least the uh, the tradition was or the, the word around uh, the, the Jews were that you, you would die if, if, if the message wasn't good. So they were fearful of that, probably going back to the angel of death in Exodus, but they were fearful of that. But they, they feared angels. They honored angels. They believed that angels were a big deal because they brought the law. They believed that the Old Testament law was a big deal. You may remember that Jesus had to debate the Pharisees a lot about law and how they were caught up on Moses and the law. And Jesus had to say, hey, look, I am come to fulfill that law. Not to do away with it, but I am come to fulfill it. And the author here is making the point that Jesus is greater than the angels and greater than the law. And then the exhortation was that we are to heed and obey. Heed and obey. Hey, since Jesus is such a big deal, don't ignore the living word and don't ignore the written word. And then we looked at, uh, so that was chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4, we talked about how that Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life. And we said he is elevated above Moses and the promised land. One thing you learn about uh, Jews from reading the Gospels is that the Jews made a big deal out of Moses and Abraham. 
Boy, they made a big deal out of it. And you know what? There are a whole lot of religions today that still still make a big deal. Deal still make a big deal. There we go. Out of Moses and Abraham. Well, that's a tongue twister a little bit when you're speaking real fast. Uh, but uh, Jesus, uh, G, uh, the the author of Hebrews or God is telling them the Jews here that Jesus is a bigger deal than Moses. Moses gave the law that the Jews couldn't keep. Moses gave the law to show them that they fell short. Jesus came and he offered uh, healing from their brokenness of the law. And he gives to them a new covenant, a new covenant. Jesus is the ultimate lawgiver and Jesus is the healer. What, uh, how are we exhorted as Christians? We, we are exhorted to believe and rest in his promise. Now, I, I spent a good chunk of the service Last week, looking at that last part, rest in his promise. And remember, the parallel here is Moses and the promised land and how that Jesus offers something better than Moses in the promised land. Moses was the lawgiver. Jesus is uh, uh, the ultimate lawgiver. And then we talked about how that they walked right up. Remember this? They walked right up to the promised land. And because of their unbelief, they were denied. Right? And we said that faith saves us, but faith also grows us. And if you cannot enter the promised land of the Christian life if you're not going to walk by total faith in Christ. And the promised land is not a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of the victorious Christian life. And we, I, I laid all that out. And then we talked about how that God offers Christians here on earth rest. And His rest is better than the promised land of the Old Testament. We, then we looked at Hebrews 4, and we talked about how that rest is offered for the weary and the anxious. And we said that Hebrews 4.12 fits in that context of getting rest. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, uh, piercing the sun the dividing of, uh, of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I may not have got that perfect, but I think I'm pretty close there. And uh, Jesus, the Word of God, can go down into the deepest, most uh, uh, complex levels of who we are, our psyche and our person, and He can heal us. And He can give you rest. And so I, I challenge the church to really go in and study that. And that's where we finished last week, looking at Hebrews chapter 4. Well, there's two more sections here, and then there's a conclusion to the book, okay? Chapters 11, 12, and 13 are the conclusion of the book. Because Jesus is better uh, than the angels in the law, and Jesus is better than Moses in the promised land, and Jesus is better in these next two sections, because of that, we are to walk by faith. But let's work our way there. Let's climb up that mountain and get to that climax in the message here in just a moment. Number three, notice Jesus is the eternal priest. Uh, Number one, eternal word. Number two, gives eternal life. Number three, Jesus is the eternal priest. Now, the other big, big deal to the Jews was this priesthood, and that's been kept around, has it not? The priesthood? There are all kinds of religions in the world that still hold to the priesthood. It's not just the Catholics. You have Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox, and you have all kinds of religions that are similar to Catholicism. They really like to hold on to that priesthood. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and man. That's what a priest is, okay? And so we're going to look at here how that uh, Jesus is better than the priest, and that Jesus is the ultimate priest. If you're taking notes there, he is elevated above the Levitical priests. He's elevated above 
the Levitical priests. Now, before we get into this, I just want to make an observation, and I, and I want you to be looking for this as we read. Have you ever noticed that Jesus has never ever ascri- Jesus has never ever ascribed to being from the tribe of Levi? Never. He's never connected to the tribe of Levi anywhere in the Bible. And the reason for that is that Levitical priests were all very sinful. And they had to atone for their sins while they were atoning for the sins of the people. Jesus comes from a different line of priesthood. We're going to look at that right here. Look at chapter 5 and verse number 1. i got to turn back over there. Give me a moment. For every high priest, it says, taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. We can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof, he ought as for the people so also for himself to offer for sin. So look there, again, verse 3. If you read fast, you'll miss it. As by reason hereof we ought, as for the people, so also for himself, talking about the priest, to offer for sin. So not only does he offer for the people, he offers for himself. Verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, so Uh, as was Aaron, so also Christ glorified not. Look at the comparison here. Glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he uh, that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who uh, who in the day of his flesh... When he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the thing which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him, called of God, called of God and high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus didn't elevate himself up to be a priest. His father elevated himself up to be a priest. Just like Levi was elevated by God to be a priest, Jesus was elevated high to be a priest. He didn't elevate himself. God elevated him. And the difference here, what ele- what makes Jesus better than the Levitical priesthood and the the uh, the, uh, the brotherhood that went along with that was that Jesus uh, uh, did not need to atone for his own sin. He only needed to atone for our sins. Whereas the Levites, the priests, had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could ever offer for anybody else. So that's what makes Jesus better. And so remember here that the hang-up with the Jews is that they're making a big deal out of priests, even though the veil in the temple has been torn in half from top to bottom, and God has made it very clear, I don't want any more priests. They're still having a hard time holding on to this. Now look with me at chapter uh, 6 and verse number 20. It's chapter 6 and verse 20. It says, Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made in high priest, forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. Now that's the second time we've seen the name Melchizedek in our reading. And if you want to read chapters 5 through 8, you find his name all over the place. Who's Melchizedek? That's a curious um, name. Where did he come from all of a sudden? He just dropped in the book of Hebrews out of nowhere. Where did Melchizedek come from? 
Uh, Melchizedek comes from Genesis 14. Abraham paid a tithe to him. You say, okay, pastor, but who is he? And I'll tell you this, somewhat it's a mystery. It's somewhat a mystery. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion, okay? But if you have a different opinion, we can still love each other, okay? I think that Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. That's my opinion, okay? If you have a different opinion, it's all good, all right? You don't have to leave the church. You don't have to, you know, be kicked out of the membership, all right? But I think Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, and he was the priest in the Old Testament, and he is the priest in the New Testament. If he isn't Jesus, then you're going to have to add a fourth person to the Trinity, in my opinion, because he was flawless, he was sinless, he was eternal, and and Jesus is described the coming after him. So uh, there are other people that have different opinion opinions. I'm not going to argue with anybody on it, uh, but Jesus is said to have come from that line, the line of Melchizedek. Look at chapter 7, verse 15. It says, and again, the point here is that Jesus is better than the priests. It says, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. So this person has the same qualities as Melchizedek. Verse 16, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what you find when you really dig deep in Hebrews, uh, and I'm toying with the idea in my mind, uh, praying over the idea of doing a very in-depth study of Hebrews once we finish through the book of Revelation, coming back and going verse by verse through Hebrews, because I've just really enjoyed this, okay? But what you find when you go through the book of Hebrews is almost every other line, there is some quote from the Old Testament. And if you go back and you study it out and you really, really dive into it, what you find is there's all kinds of richness and depth and chain links connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. I'm going to show you one of these right here. Turn back over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Now, here uh, here we're told in uh, chapter 7, at verse 17, that uh, that God is testifying that Jesus would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that would be, that was prophesied. Where, where and when was that prophesied? And here we find, uh, Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is what we call a messianic, uh, psalm. Meaning a psalm that was a prediction of the coming Messiah. And a lot of the messianic psalms, David wrote them and didn't even know what he was writing, okay? And, 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 and like, for instance, Psalm 22, he's writing about Jesus and his crucifixion, but he probably thought he was writing about his own suffering. Okay, so a lot of them may even have a dual meaning, but Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. And I'm going to show you something really neat here that maybe you've never seen. Some of you already know this, but for some of you tonight, this will really be a wow moment in the Bible. Look here at verse 1. It says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies, thine enemies, thine enemies thy footstool. Now, that's, that's a peculiar verse. It sounds like somebody's talking to themselves, but they're not. Everybody got a Bible? Look back at verse uh, 1. Notice the punctual, or rather the, the, uh, the, let's see, what, the capitalization, is that the word? I feel, I feel like there's a better word. We'll run without it. Okay, the font, not font, you computer nerd. Okay, um, look, at, look at verse, look at the first Lord and notice that it's capital L. 
capital O, capital R, capital D. In my Bible, I have that circled, have a line drawn to the margin, and it says, God the Father. Okay? Said unto my Lord, notice that it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d. That is speaking of God the Son. This is so important because this is, Hebrews is referencing Psalm 110 here. And he's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. So, Let's put God the Father where the first Lord is and God the Son is where the second Lord is. And let's read it again. God the Father said unto God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now that, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Look at verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion rule, thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now that's speaking of Christ in the millennial, a millennium. Uh, verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauty of beauties of holiness. For uh, the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy uh, youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art Now that, notice that is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Speaking of God the Father hath sworn and will not repent. Thou, God the Son, art a priest forever after the rule of Melchizedek. So who is Jesus? Jesus is not a flawed priest after the tribe of Levi, Jesus is a perfect priest after the line of Melchizedek. What is the author of Hebrews trying to tell these Jewish Christians? He's trying to say, Jesus is your priest king. He is your perfect priest king. So what is the challenge from this? What is the challenge from this? And I would encourage you to go back and look at chapter 7, verse 26 through 28 uh, another time. But I want to make sure we get through the message tonight. What is the exhortation? The exhortation there is to reconcile with God. We are exhorted to reconcile with God. Now, again, remember that an earthly priest, both uh, a daily and yearly, the Day of Atonement, would go in and, and, and uh, make mediation between uh, fallen sinful man and God, I did a whole series when I first got here on uh, the uh, the Old Testament uh, sacrifices and the five sacrifices, and now God, Jesus is the completion of all five. But they would put their hands on the horns of the animal; guilt would be transferred on the animal. The animal was killed, but the priest had to also do that for themselves. Okay, and so Jesus came along, and he stood between God and man, and he reconciled them together, and he was the final priest of Melchizedek. So there. There was no more need for a priest to step in between us. You know, I, I was at uh, St. Vincent's today with the DiGirolamos, and I needed to go to the pastoral care office to get my parking ticket validated, and I met the priest there, and I thought about my Bible study tonight, and I almost wanted to take him into Hebrews and say, look here, buddy, uh, why do you call yourself a priest? But that wasn't why I was, why I was there. Um, what, why is it that, or what is it that we're uh, warned or exhorted to do here? You have a person who is standing between you and God, wanting to reconcile you to an eternal God that is wrathfully angry at your sin. Are you going to take him up on it or not? Are you going to let Jesus be the absorber of the wrath of God for your sin? Or not? Now, I believe all of you here are saved. But uh, what you may take away from this tonight is you meet someone who doesn't think that God can ever forgive them. You can take them to this passage and show them that Jesus is that priest that has satisfied the wrath of God and wants to reconcile you to God. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. 
it says there, uh, but now we had, uh, now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he, Jesus, is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. He's saying here, if being good could get you to heaven, then why in the world did Jesus have to come and die? That's what 6 and 7 mean. For finding fault, verse 8, with them, he saith, uh, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, uh, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand uh, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. What a beautiful verse. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to step in and show mercy where they're sinful, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. All God's people said, Got to wake up there. All God's people said, In that he saith the new covenant, he hath made the first old, uh, not that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So Jesus here is the reconciler of God to man. Take, take him up on that if you haven't. Do that tonight. Put your faith and trust in Jesus alone to save you. All right, let's look at the last section here that Jesus is better and then we'll bring it to a close. Number four, notice Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So you have Jews worshiping the angels and the law, Jews worshiping Moses and them entering the promised land. You have Jews worshiping uh, the Levitical priesthood. And, and the author comes by and says, Jesus is better than all that. Let me give you one more area Jesus is better than. And you need to lay all that to the side and just focus on Jesus. And that is the sacrifices themselves. And we find that in chapters uh, 9 and 10, also somewhat in chapter 8, but we'll focus tonight on chapter 9 and 10. Notice he is elevated above the animal sacrifices. Above the animal sacrifices. Now, here's the one part that grosses a lot of people out. I watched a Christian comedian on YouTube a while back. He sat down a bunch of people. I think this is a genius idea. He sat down a bunch of people who had never been to church. And this this guy grew up in church his whole life. He was homeschooled and you know, um, uh, that son of a pastor and all this stuff. He sat down a bunch of people who never been to church, and he asked them a bunch of questions that only, like, Baptist church-going people would know or Christian church people would know. And one question he asked them was, what does it mean to be redeemed by the blood? And they were like, uh, is this some kind of cult? Is this some kind of weird thing? What, what's going on with that? Right? It, it, was a, it was a pretty funny moment because they didn't know. It was sad, but uh, funny in, in its own, own way. Um, do you know that the shedding of blood goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when that lamb was killed to create clothing for Adam and Eve and that sacrifice was made representing Jesus to come? Why was, why was it that God wanted the blood of a spotless lamb shed. Why the blood? Why the blood? The answer is, the Bible tells us in Leviticus that the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
Blood lives. Blood is alive. And that blood being spilled uh, was representative of Jesus' perfect blood that would be eternally alive, that is used even today to wash away all the sins off our record and give us a clean slate with God. And the blood of those animals was not perfect. Now, uh, they were to choose a lamb without spot or blemish. You know what that means? That means it looked good on the outside. Please don't miss this. It was perfect on the outside in appearance, but it had a tainted, sin-cursed blood that was imperfect on the inside. You say, how do you know that the blood was imperfect? Because there's not been a lamb to survive all the way from there till now. So clearly the blood wasn't perfect. It looked perfect on the outside, but it was not perfect on the inside. That blood was not perfect. That's why those animal sacrifices were not good enough. Because that blood was sin-cursed. It was tainted under the sin fall. However, Jesus would come, the eternal God incarnate in front of us, with perfect blood. If Jesus had not been willing to let them nail Him to the cross, do you know He'd still be alive today? He, He only died because He was willing to lay down His life and let them kill Him. And that blood He shed was perfect on the inside, and that was the last sacrifice needed. Uh, he was the last priest. He was the last sacrifice. Let's look, let's look at this quickly. Look at chapter 9 and verse number 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into uh, the first tabernacle, uh, accomplishing the, sacri- the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone. Uh, uh, this speaking of the Holy of Holies, once every year, this is the Day of Atonement, not without blood or with blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors or sins of the people, transgressions of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, which at the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, uh, in which were offered both gift and sacrifices that could not make him that did uh, the, the service perfect as pertaining to the conscious. Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ... Being come, be, uh, being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves. Look at verse 12. But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much much more shall the blood of Christ, uh, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is amazing. He is the priest and he is the priest that sacrificed himself. He laid himself on the offer, altar and as the priest, he sacrificed himself. He shed his own blood. Then he stood up from the dead. He gathered his own blood. He walked into the holy of holies of heaven and he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat of heaven to atone for our sins. What an amazing God we serve. He is not just a sacrifice. He sacrificed himself and then stood up and used his own blood to purge our souls from sin. Look at verse number, uh, look, let's see, look down at verse number, or chapter 10, verse number 14. 
It says, For by one offering he hath perfected, for even them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, uh, for after that he hath said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit here. And in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. What does that mean? That because Jesus was sacrificed, there's no more need to have any more animal sacrifices. He was the last sacrifice. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, uh, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. I just want to pause here. Um, You know what was so scary for these Jewish Christians? This was a new way to worship. They were terrified by it. Totally terrified by it. You mean that we're not to hold of the Old Testament rituals any longer? We're to transition to this new way of worshiping our God, our Yahweh? Yes, you are. There's a new way to do it, and it's by worshiping the person of Jesus. And setting that to the side, your old traditions and clinging to a way that worships Jesus by Uh, Verse 20, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Now think about that. I love the picture drawn here in verse 20. A priest would have a veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. They'd have to walk through that veil. What was the veil between, between man and redemption? The veil was his flesh, and on the other side of that flesh was his blood. Isn't that something? And that his flesh was, just as the veil in the temple was rent into, his flesh was rent open so that his blood could spill and atone our sins. And then uh, look at verse 21. And having an high priest over the house of God, speaking of Jesus. He is the uh, he is elevated above all of the animal sacrifices. And then I'll finish uh, with this and we'll look at the conclusion here. We are exhorted to live a life of faith, and faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness. Those aren't the same thing. I'm going to give you the difference here in a moment. But can I tell you this? This is the point of the whole book. The point of the whole book is drawing to this grand climatic conclusion. And that is, it's about faith. It's about faith in Jesus. It's not about the going through the motions of practicing religion. It's about faith in Jesus. I, I, I tremble at this thought, but I think that even for a lot of folks that come to church here, they're just showing up to church to go through a religious ritual. Don't do that. Look, you're not impressing God by showing up to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, or any one or, or uh, one or all of the three. You're not impressing God by reading your Bible and praying. You're not. You're not impressing God if you hand out a track or go soul winning. That doesn't impress Him. And if your attitude about living the Christian life is is I need robotic rituals to go through in order to please my God, then you got it all wrong. 
We do these things not for His approval, but because He has saved us. And, and, and we're doing it because we're living a life of faith. It is faith that saves you, and then it's faith that grows you in your walk with God and in that process of sanctification. And then, so what's the difference between faith and faithfulness? Well, faith is the act of trusting God, even when I can't see the outcome. I'm going to trust what the Word of God says and the leading of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm going to trust Him, even though I don't know the outcome. Faithfulness is, is doing that over a long period of time and doing it consistently. That's the difference. Faith is the act of believing even when I can't see. Faithfulness is doing that over a long period of time and doing it consistently. Faith and faithfulness. Look at chapter 10, verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart. And here's where he takes that whole that thought about Jesus being better than the sacrifices. And then he, he comes in and he says, what are we going to do with this? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's a lot of ties in here. The, the, that, that phrase there, washed with pure water, is a reference to the Bible washing us and the sanctification process. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. There's the faithfulness without wavering. For he is faithful that promise. Say, since he's faithful to you, you be faithful to him. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now we have the team concept or church thrown in here. Look at verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see, you see the day approaching. So verse 25 is another one of these verses that gets quoted a lot. But look, he's saying, here, you need to have faith in Jesus to, to not only save you, but grow you, and then you need to be faithful, and how am I going to be faithful? Well, I need to get together with other people that have faith and are trying to be faithful, and I need to have a synergy that's built together with them, and that's what church is. Have you ever showed up to church feeling like you're just ready to throw in the towel with your faith, you just had a rough week, and you walk out the door going, oh boy, I got this, I can do this for the Lord. It's almost like uh, one of those roller coasters, or, or rather, um, uh, yeah, roller coaster. You, you come down the hill, and then you start ticking, tick, tick, tick back up. You get to the top, and woo, off you go again, right? And you get to church, and you're, you're dragging. You don't even know if you're going to get to the top of the hill. And then you walk out of church, and the fellowship's been sweet, the singing's been good, the preaching's been hopefully good, and you zip down the bottom of the hill, and off you go into another week, and you survive till uh, Sunday, and tick, tick, tick back up to the top, and you go again. That's what church is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring that uh, out of you. Faith and faithfulness. Let me uh, read just a couple more verses with you here. Look at verse 32. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye, uh, whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of, of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Look at verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Hey, you are being... Locked up in prison, and some of you are being persecuted and killed for your faith. 
and the temptation is to quit. And he says here, listen, don't lose your confidence. Don't let the, the prevailing winds against you keep you from continuing to do what's right and being who you are. Faith and faithfulness. And then to encourage them, he hops into chapter 11. Now, if you were here last week and this week, and even if you've just been here this week, I hope what you've gotten is a perspective about the book. And here's, a, here's an observation I want to make, okay? Prior to my studying of Hebrews for this series of sermons, last week and this week, um, I did not fully and deeply understand the book the way I do now. And there's a whole lot more of, uh, I want, I've, I've got enough understanding now to be curious to really dive in and study the rest. But can I tell you from a bird's eye view what I've learned about the book? Here's what I've learned about the book. The emphasis in chapter 11 should not be on the people but on the action. He's saying all through the book, Jesus is better than the angels in the law, Moses in the promised land, the Levitical priest. He's better uh, than the animal sacrifices. You need to have faith. You need to have faith. You need to have faith in this person of Jesus. And if there's any question to you Jews about how to be saved, let me give you a long list of Old Testament heroes who are, who are heroes to your Jewish faith. And how did all of them gain favor with God? Was it because they kept the Old Old Testament law? No, it was because they had faith. The emphasis is not on the people. The emphasis is on the faith. And the only reason why we're given their names is to make a point to these Jewish Christians that, hey, just as they were redeemed by faith, today you will be redeemed by faith. Just as they grew in their walk by faith, you will grow in your walk by faith. And then he brings it home and makes it personal in chapter 12. And he tells them that they're running a race. And they can't run the race without faith. And I'll tell you today that message, although I don't know that we have any Jewish Christians in the room tonight. And if we do, we don't have any that are steeped in Old Testament rituals. I will say this. This part applies to all of us. We're in a race. We're to run, and we're to run hard. And we're to run to please the Lord. And we're to run long term. I'm not going to re-preach my Sunday evening sermon from two weeks ago. But I would encourage you that tonight, if you're discouraged, maybe look at the motive of why you've been trying to live the Christian life. And if your motive is just to fulfill a bunch of religious obligations and gain God's favor, hey, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You do it not so that He loves you. You do that because He loves you. That's the book of Hebrews. Jesus is just better. And i got to say, praise the Lord, we serve such an awesome God. Uh, who is the hero of the Bible? Well, Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Uh, next week, we're going to hop into the book of James. And James has been called the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. So you'll enjoy the book of James. I hope that you'll be here for that. And it, it, uh, it's all over the place. We'll, uh, we'll get to explore the tongue next week. We'll get to explore works how works works with our faith, how works uh, fits along with our faith, and all of those wonderful things. Who wrote the book of James? The brother of Jesus. So we'll get to look at that. All right, let's stand to be dismissed tonight. Thank you for being faithful to God's house. It's been a joy to have you here. Hope you've been challenged.